was a very bright shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future. New documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. The Built by Bama Online podcast presents T Watts and TR for Thursday, May the 14th, 2020. Travis Ryer, senior analyst for BOL, joined as always by site publisher Tim Watts. And uh, Tim, we're getting more and more into this sort of reopening phase as it relates to the coronavirus pandemic. Where are you at as we bring you in here? Are you, uh, you jumping right back into general population? How are you and yours going about that process, Tim? You know, I've never really been a, a gin pop kind of guy to begin with. <laughs> you know, I've never... <laughs> I've never always, been an Oz, Oz guy? <laughs> no, I've always, I've always wanted to be in that protective wing, you know? So even before <laughs> this, I'm sort of a guy that's, you know, sort of a homebody. If I'm out, I'm out in another city usually. So for me, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much status quo. I haven't changed a whole lot, uh, a little less errands. Uh, the families doing more, um, have consistently did more the whole time. So I'm not all in right there. Um, and we're still waiting to see some things open, but we've never really just like completely hid from it. We've just been tried to be cautious, you know, Death Row Watts, basically. Isolation for Tim. On Dead, a, man on a Dead man walking. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we're kind of taking the same approach, you know. Um, not really fearful of the situation, but certainly mindful. And I guess respectful might be the best way to put it, you know. I mean, look, I understand there are folks out there, they want to jump right back into everyday life as it was before this situation. God bless them. I understand that. We're all going stir crazy uh, at this point, and that's what you want to do. Again, I understand it, but, um, you know, I'm not going to be French kissing any bats or goats or anything anytime soon either. And just uh, we're trying to ease our way through some things here, and uh, we're hoping everybody else is getting through it in a pretty safe manner as well. Hey, um, something we were going to talk about as we move throughout the podcast today Uh, When we do get back to pretty much full tilt go, uh, what's going to be the one place, the one thing that you do first that you haven't been able to do as much perhaps since this situation uh, came into play? For me, it's just travel. You know, usually this May, we're supposed to head to Europe on Friday. Tomorrow, we'd have been going to Europe for 19 days. Wow. So for me, I've got New York City fever um see every show you know till i went to new york i never really realized how many shows were in new york and every movie and every show i think we watch so i you know me i just want to get out and see something different just get into a different area you know yeah i'm kind of the same way you know i'm supposed to be actually in honolulu right now because the the oldest graduation was set for saturday out on oahu so that went by the boards. I still think we're going to try to get down to the Gulf, not so much to get into the mix of the, the crowds and things like that. And I just would like to sit out on a balcony and, and look at the 
the Gulf of Mexico maybe for three or four days. Yeah. Now, that would be plenty for me at this oh, point. Oh, yeah. I think the most uh, likely for us is probably a trip to Destin. I'm still waiting. Yeah. They're doing something where they're not the, – I guess you can't rent an Airbnb or VRBO yet or something I was reading. So I'm waiting. Yeah. I think you can still get a hotel. I know there's been a bunch of stuff about that. But, yeah, Destin would be a really good spot right now. Um, and it is a trip we usually squeeze in right about this time before travel baseball gets going for our second one. The showcase season got going. So that would be, that'd be a really good trip. I agree with you. I guess some of it has to do even right now with which side of that state line you're on, right? Um, you know, if you're in Destin, that obviously could perhaps be a little bit different. Uh, than if you're in Gulf Shores, I guess. Um, interesting how that works from state to state. But, you know, something that is continuing on is the recruiting process. And we've talked about that a good bit here in the last couple of weeks, as it looks like Alabama's starting to ramp up more and more in terms of football commitments for the 2021 cycle. And I guess the expectation, Tim, is that that will continue on Friday evening as Kane Williams, the 6'2", 205-pound safety from New Orleans, set to make his announcement. And, Tim, what does it look like in terms of the crystal ball and, and more importantly, how you kind of see this thing playing out? You know, right now I think it's, uh, you know, he's one of those guys, you know, I've said this and I'll say it over and over and over again. He's another one of the prospects the Alabama staff would have liked to have in the camp. And that's not a slight on anybody because really they want to have everybody in the camp. And why wouldn't they? That's the best chance to see them to evaluate them. You saw what a great job they did last year ahead of the curve on several prospects. So, But with Kane, I mean, you're looking at a guy, he's a big kid. I personally, now this is my personal projection, I think he could grow into a, to a linebacker pretty easily. He's got a big frame. He's put together really well. He's a Louisiana athlete. Um you know, had some good some good schools after him, and you know, and, and a few of them, LSU and Alabama, probably the two main ones through this through this cycle so far, had them pretty much in the same boat. Was waiting to see them in uh, camp to sort of see where they uh, what they thought about linebacker and safety, and you know where he projected. So it looks like Alabama is going to be the one to pull the trigger, and that you know they're going to have to make those decisions. You can't count on camps now as much as you'd like to. Uh, I don't feel, you know, overall the recruiting I've I've seen that the the panic or the uh, the uh, the urgency that the Alabama fans felt. I don't think the Alabama staff felt that way. I think they knew this was a marathon. It wasn't a sprint, and uh, they were going to take their time and get the guys because that's what's worked out best for them the last two years. We're rushing to take commitments, and we've seen a lot of schools with a lot of commitments, a lot of commitments, and there's still a lot of football that you don't know about these guys. You don't know. How, you won't be able to see them in junior camp. You haven't seen them as a senior. How do they change? Um, there's a lot of a lot that can happen between junior and senior season. So I'm surprised a little bit that they have so many commitments. But then again, we've seen coaches are unlimited calling, and uh, some of these kids are getting wore out, just you know, worn down and committing, probably out of boredom. You know, I had one one a one mentor to a to a prospect that told me uh, if he committed and he hasn't committed yet, this is a uh, guy, he said he's committing out of boredom. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I got to have something to do. Yes. He said he's just bored. So um, wasn't really Bama related, but it was interesting nevertheless. Waiting on my commitment edit, right? My graphic before I can go ahead and drop that on uh, Twitter or on my social media timeline. And you get it, man, because these are 16, 17, 18 year old kids. And as much as we think we're going stir crazy right now, 
uh, think back to those days and imagine what it would be like to be in this type of situation. Um, now, Pete Golden, Tim, the primary recruiter, I guess, on Kane Williams down there in New Orleans. Yeah, Pete recruits that area, has a few of the big guys uh, this year. And, of course, Pete helps out with other guys, too. I mean, he's he's throwing an assist towards uh, Deontay Lawson and uh, some other guys. But he's got the big wide receiver, Brian Thomas, down there and a few others that he recruits. So he, he does a pretty good job in that Louisiana area. And uh, it's quite the battle. I mean, LSU coach, you know, Orgeron knows how to recruit, always has known how to recruit. LSU's seen some, seen some success. So uh, he's got his work cut out for him. But, you know, I think this would get the class off to a good start. As you see, it's moving along slowly. But if you look at the players they're getting, it's a very positive class if you look at these guys. And the recruiting calendar seems to continually change with this uh, coronavirus, as we've seen here in the last day, the dead period extended now through June the 30th. So no visits um, for, throughout at least June the 30th, although I'm guessing, Tim, coaches had pretty much, uh, I'm guessing, anticipated this coming. Yeah, they did. And what's interesting is you're seeing kids commit who have, have never visited the school they've committed. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's been a lot of talk. I've talked to the first one that mentioned this is about six weeks ago is an NFL coach that told me, he said, all this stuff that's happening. He said, you wait till this pops open. And all these kids takes a visit. Cause there's going to be an entire new recruiting cycle for these kids. So anticipate some decommitments and most of them are going to take visits. And there's a question of how committed, you know, and I'm not talking Alabama guys. Most of these kids are pretty familiar with the Alabama program. Um, but there will be a, a whole interesting cycle after when they're able to go and take visits. And you also have that NBA draft deadline for underclassmen being pushed back now to an undetermined date. That impacts Nate Oates' program in terms of John Petty, Herbert Jones, uh, the time frame that they have to work with to make their decisions. Um, back to Pete Golding a little bit. You know, I dropped on BamaOnline.com first thing Thursday morning. My top five opposing defensive coordinators on Alabama's 2020 schedule. Really interesting to note for as much shrapnel, I guess you could say, as Pete Golding has caught here in the last year or so from Alabama fans. Pete Golding's defense in 2019 actually ranked ahead of three other SEC Western Division defensive coordinators, Tim who combined to make $6.5 million last year when you talk about Dave Aranda, you talk about uh, Kevin Steele, you talk about Mike Elko at Texas A&M. Boy, that that Alabama standard of defense, though, I guess that's what uh, Pete's working against as much as he is even his competition. Look, you know, I've said this all along, and I'm not making excuses for anybody but if an offense scores in 11 seconds, which Alabama's offense could, or scores quickly or scores a lot, the defense is on the field more than ever. I mean, this is exactly what happened in the national championship game when Alabama lost to Clemson, where, what did they take, 102 snaps? Is that what the defense uh, it was? It was that, upwards of 100, yeah. It was unbelievable. If that's a normal offense running the ball, you know, controlling the ball. They they probably win that game convincingly, in my opinion. That defense was so stout. But when you put when you the offense can actually add pressure to the defense. And uh they get more possessions. They're on the field a lot more. I mean if you looked at Alabama last season, I think every first drive and every last drive of the game ended up in the touch ended up a touchdown. 
it just seemed that way that, that they got off to a slow start and finished once they got a lead that they gave up that late those points. So I'm curious to see if it's a little bit more conservative. Obviously, the offense is going to be you know lit again. It's going to be fantastic, but it doesn't have two and two was sort of that 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 point guard. You know, he was sort of that you know Russell Westbrook go 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 go. So I'm curious to see how that changes and if the defense doesn't improve a little bit along with some healthy guys and some young talent. Yeah, you know, Alabama offensively the last couple of years was like 1989 Loyola Marymount uh, when you had Bo Kimball and Hank, the late Hank Gathers and those guys. Yeah, Paul Westhead, they were scoring, uh, you know, like 140 points a game in college basketball. So it will be very interesting to see if perhaps – uh, an adjustment anyway, uh, a slight difference to this offensive approach perhaps in 2020 could be beneficial to the defensive side of the ball for sure. Uh, Tim, something else we want to get into with you today, and we're going to do that right now, is and we're going to get into that mailbag coming up a little bit later as well. We certainly always appreciate our subscribers there uh, on the BOL roundtable for helping us out with that. But wanted to get into ranking Alabama's uh, SEC championship game wins. Maybe not even so much the teams for those seasons, but just the wins themselves. And, you know, Kirk McNair of our staff has done a great job in recent weeks with some retrospective looks at uh, Alabama teams and and championship teams from the past. But uh, you look at the SEC championship game since its inception in 1992, Alabama tied with Florida for the most appearances in SEC championship games with 12. Alabama leads the way in wins in SEC championship games with eight. Five of those wins against the University of Florida, and that's where we're going to get a a lot into sort of that matchup, I think, coming up in this segment. But really, you have to go back to 92 and historic on a number of levels, and we'll run through these pretty quickly, in that – the SEC championship game that year was really the uh, inception of a playoff in college football uh, with the with the league going to that title game and uh, played the game in Birmingham. I was there. I can recall it for a lot of reasons. The weather being one uh, chief among them, but um, just sort of your recollection of you know that game going into play back in '92 and and sort of the impact it had. Yeah, to me, that's that's probably the number one out of all the SEC championships from Alabama. Obviously, it's the first one. Uh, fantastic game the finish, you know, you know, being at Legion Field, even it had that old old South football feel to it. Obviously, a big impact. Um, two pretty talented teams. Uh, I actually heading into that game. I thought Alabama would win a little more convincing. So when it was it was a as a younger guy, it was a it was a little nerve wracking. But um to start it out the way you did, to play it in Legion Field, to win in, you know, win in overtime and, you know, interception, run back and everything else. It was just, uh, to me, it was always the favorite of those moments, which, you know, when you asked, when you said, let's look at this, when I looked at it, it was amazing how difficult it was right out of the gate. Because I think you can make a case for at least two more of these to really, really, yeah, I think you could really, really make a case that they were just as important Alabama fans. Yeah, the league really almost screwed itself with this first SEC championship game because Alabama was already 11-0 and and was already in position to play for a national title. But, 
you know, the uh, the implementation of the championship game that year, Antonio Langham, of course, with that memorable interception of Shane Matthews and return there in the fourth quarter that really saved the day for the Crimson Tide. Again, so many little things I remember about that game. I remember I remember Michael Proctor because a couple of, I think it was 15-yard penalties against Alabama after a touchdown. Probably the only time I've ever seen a 50-yard extra point was in that game. And that was Michael Proctor back in 1992. I remember, again, it just being raw to the bone cold at Legion Field. I have no doubt the weather in those first two SEC championship games in Birmingham had everything to do with the game eventually heading over to Atlanta in 1994. Um I remember antifreeze in the form of Evan Williams, by the way. And so if you're wondering how our oldest got his name, that might be a good indication, Tim. Uh, but, yeah, it was it, it was historic. I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. Now, if you want to talk about a most surprising Alabama team to win an SEC championship game, it would probably have to be the next one Alabama won in 1999 went through some losses there in 93 real heartbreaker in 94 to Florida over in Atlanta one point loss 96 lost to the Gators again but then in 1999 that team came out of nowhere Tim because in week three Alabama lost to Louisiana Tech and it looked like Mike (laughs) Dubos and that staff were on their way out the next two weeks they beat ranked teams in Arkansas and Florida and then off they went Tim yeah, they is off and running. It's not only just winning, but it was the manner in which they won this game. And um, yeah, I was back with Freddie, and it's it's. I don't think anybody. You're right. I don't think anybody saw this coming. And I think preseason that wasn't really predicted. Alabama to have much. There wasn't. There's was a lot of question marks around that team. Um, and that team you saw it the next year and the start of this year it was a very. That team could be really good. Those teams could be really good, and they could. They had some moments where they were obviously not very good. Yeah, you had Freddie Millens on the uh, reverse, and that went over Florida. You had some good players on that team, and I mean Chris Samuels at, at left tackle, um, Sean Alexander at running back. Uh, you were playing a couple of quarterbacks in '99, I guess. Uh, that, that was a good football team from a pure talent standpoint. It was dysfunctional off the field in some ways, but man, once it once it found its stride, won eight out of nine following that loss to Louisiana Tech. And, of course, finished that season with a close loss to Tom Brady and the Michigan Wolverines down in the Orange Bowl. Uh, and then it was kind of a desert for Alabama between SEC championship uh, wins. Not only wins, but just appearances. From 99 through 2007, you didn't see Alabama in an SEC championship game. 2008. Year two under Nick Saban, the Crimson Tide makes it back to the league title game, loses a tough one to eventual national champion Florida. But then in 2009, the very next year, gets back to the game and takes care of business against Tim Tebow, Urban Meyer, and the Florida Gators. Yeah, that was incredible. I'd taken my wife to that game, and it was, I mean, that was a... uh... That was a pretty exciting weekend. I'll never forget after the game the next morning. We had stayed at some hotel, and it was taking forever. You know how it is the next day after a game like that to get the elevator. So you're full. If you're, if you're on a, you know, you're, the elevator's full the minute you get on it. Well, we're halfway down to, like, the fourth floor, and the door's open, and there's Emmett Smith. <laughs> and it, it, is, it is everybody in there is, like, roll tight. And, I mean, this is a whole Alabama dude. 
And he said, whole Alabama crowd. And Emmett Smith's like, I'll get the next one. And I said, no, you're good. Come on. We've already did enough to you. And I stepped back, and he stepped on with his cowboy boots, laughed and shared a few jokes and went down. But, yeah, that game was crazy. I mean, going in, you thought Alabama had a chance. You know, you, you had to think Alabama and Nick Saban and them had planned. But the way it happened, uh, at that point, Tebow and them were almost seemed invincible. I know Tim Tebow did, just a great football player. And, you know, he could he had that he could will them to win and to see Alabama beat them and, and dismantle them and Greg – you know, hip hopping down the uh, hip hopscotching down the sideline. You know, Mark doing everything he did in that defense. Unbelievable in that game. Uh, just a you know big time win. Yeah, the thing that I wouldn't have expected at about the midway point of that 2009 season was the Greg McElroy we saw in that stretch of really Auburn and Florida in back to back weeks there. Because Greg in that passing game, I mean, if you think back to October of that season and you think to that South Carolina win in Tuscaloosa where Alabama essentially just went wildcat with Mark Ingram taking direct snaps and running for 240 yards that homecoming night here in Tuscaloosa, even the LSU game, other than the quick hit out to Julio that he turned into a explosive play for a touchdown, that Alabama passing attack, and, and I, I use that sort of somewhat sarcastically, was was a was a, a struggle. Um, but Greg got it going late, had the huge drive to to beat Auburn down on the plains, and then MVP of the 2009 SEC championship game. And uh, you know, I struggle with the 2009 and the 92 games. Because 92, just from a historical perspective, you're not going to top that. That was the first one. And also, it led to Alabama winning a national championship and not just winning one, but beating a Miami program that had won four in like seven or eight years. So it slowed at least the Miami dynasty. But you look at the 2009 win, Tim, and much the same effect on Florida. Florida had won two of the three previous national titles. Florida wins that game in 2009, probably looking at three and four, and the narrative becomes different. I, I, that that win in 2009 pretty much put an end to one potential dynasty, and as we know, ignited one here in Tuscaloosa. Yeah, I mean, we didn't see Florida in that championship game for several years after that, did we? It's probably five or six years at least. Um, I don't think they've won one since, have they? No, South Carolina had a little bit of a run there under Spurrier in the years that followed. If you remember, the very next year, Cam and Auburn beat South Carolina uh, in Atlanta. Beat them pretty good. Um, But, yeah, it it did. It deflated one program entirely, really, and and you're right. I mean, Florida got back to Atlanta in time, but it hadn't been the same program for sure. I'm looking now. I don't even see where they've won it since then. So, yeah, it was just Uh, a momentum change. Uh, you know, the one thing that's interesting is all these interlocking storylines where think of how Greg McElroy got to Alabama, you know, yeah. you know, and the story of McElroy, you know, Matt beating Tebow, where Alabama waited to the last minute with with Shula didn't offer another quarterback. You remember the whole Chris Smelly kid right there in Tuscaloosa going to South Carolina, how he did it. God, he committed to, you know, Tebow committed to Florida, which me and you kind of knew at the end what was happening. And we were talking, and you were like, I'm going to give Greg McElroy a Because <laughs> me and you were like, hey, they got to sign a
you know, they've got to be keeping somebody warm. So you call Greg McElroy, called me back. I called Greg McElroy, and Mike Leach had just called that family and lit them up. Because <laughs> you remember, he was committed to Mike Leach at Texas. Absolutely. And, yeah. and Mike Leach had the whole time said, Are you firm? Are you firm? And Alabama hadn't offered. He was firm. Well, when Alabama offered, it changed things. And Mike Leach had a very heated, very, uh, uh, pardon his French discussion with the McElroys. And then after that, he went a little quiet, ended up flipping to Alabama. So those storylines is very similar to that Jake Fromm and that Tua deal with Tua with Fromm flipping. And then, you know, Alabama ended up with Tua. But yeah, that game, I mean, it's hard not to look. It's hard to ignore the 92 because it's special. It's like that old black and white highlight, even though it's not black and white, highlight of that old changing of the guard. Legion Field, 83, 84,000 people there. I don't know if that's the record, but it's probably close um, uh, in that stadium. And then, so that's important. But this one right here for the modern era, for the modern Alabama fans, I think we have a lot of subscribers on the round table that this is the moment that it flipped, yeah. around, flipped it around for them. I think for some of the old leatherheads, it's a little bit blasphemous, but, and yeah. I respect, I respect anyone that has 92 at the top. I, I, I certainly understand that argument. I get it, but I probably would go 2009 by just, I mean, just a hair ahead of 92 because of what followed everything that followed that win over Florida in 2009. Um, it's been generational in terms of what Alabama, it was huge in 92. Don't get me wrong. And, and there was a really good run from Gene Stallings that followed that. There were opportunities again in 94 to perhaps knock on that national championship door. Uh, but wow. Well, I mean, what we've witnessed at Alabama since that 09 game is, um, you know, that's, it's unsurpassed really in the, in the modern, modern, more modern era, I guess you could say of, uh, of college football. Now, in terms of electric environments in the old Georgia Dome, you know, the 2012 win over Georgia, it doesn't get a lot of love in terms of uh, impact and those type of things. But I, I will die on a hill is telling you and, and arguing that that afternoon, that early evening in Atlanta in 2012, uh, with, with in, as far as an electricity in the air, uh, with Georgia right there in Atlanta and Alabama, uh, as good as it was and really in its hitting stride in that, that dynasty, um, that one that one's right up there with probably 2018 in terms of just pure excitement in a game. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, especially the way it ended, you know. It's one mm -hmm. of those games where the opposing – that's Georgia's moment of if Colt hadn't got hurt, you know, with, the, <laughs> with the, you know, they, that's the what ifs, you know, that game was closed, tip pass there at the end. Uh, that game happened really fast, you know, to me. It was like a blur. I remember all the other games. That one just was really quick with a lot of changes. Um, you know, Aaron Breathtaking. Murray. Yeah. Aaron, yeah, Aaron Murray was probably one of the best pure passers Georgia's had that Alabama's face. I don't think Jake Fromm threatened Alabama as much as Aaron Murray. He had a good arm, um, not great size, but a big arm. That Georgia team was pretty, pretty, pretty fast paced. So uh, it doesn't get enough love. You're right. Nobody ever mentions that, but it's hard because Georgia Alabama has been so intense. I mean, the last two, last two games they've played have been in, incredibly intense. So it makes sense. It falls back, but it probably 
was a better game than the second and 26 game as far as pure football watching. That's, it was. That start second and finish, 26 yeah. game was ugly. It was, it was. It was ugly on both sides of the ball. A lot of good defenses played in those games. Um, uh, but there was a lot of bad plays. You know, Tua, you know, Tua had some bad plays in that game. Through an interception when a guy never turned around and – you know, you had some plays. So this game, this 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 earlier game, to me, from a football enjoyment standpoint, was 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 one of the best. Yeah, start to finish may have been just the best game uh, of the the Alabama wins in SEC championship game history, and had had what every great game has to have, and really had multiples in terms of moments. You had the the deep ball from AJ to Amari Cooper there uh, later in the game. Uh, Eddie Lacy was your game MVP, but when I think back on that Alabama-Georgia game from 2012, um, you know, I think as much about that offensive line and the manner in which it started to take that game over and sort of allowed Eddie Lacy and TJ Yeldon uh, to do their thing. Um, What followed in 2014, 15, and 16 was really just dominance, and it was really indicative, Tim, of what the SEC West was doing in the championship game and has really continued to do. The SEC West right now riding a stretch of 10 wins uh, in 11 SEC championship games. So we'll get more into that 2018 game too. When the T-Watts and TR podcast right here on the Built by Bama online franchise returns right after this. It's the NFL offseason, but on Pick 6, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, the football season never stops. Host Will Brinson, John Breach, and Tyler Sullivan are joined by analysts like Brady Quinn, Leslie Ducible, Katie Mox, and R.J. White to keep you in the loop on everything happening around the league. Whether it's free agents signing with new teams, the all-important NFL draft, or schedule release day, Pick 6 has you covered. As the face of the league changes with every team move and player pickup this spring, Pick 6 is a must-listen. Download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and anywhere podcasts are found. So, yeah, Tim, again, you get into that stretch of 14, 15, and 16. You got a win over uh, Missouri in 2014. You got back-to-back wins over Jim McElwain and the Florida Gators in 15 and 16. And in that stretch, we talk about improbable games, improbable performers in games. I don't know if any of us ever could foresee Blake Sims being an SEC championship game MVP, but that was Blake against Missouri in 2014. Dude, Blake was just one of those fun players. You know, he's almost almost too athletic. You saw him at running back and you know, there's discussions of wide receiver and in the secondary and everything else. But you know what he could do? He could throw the football. He could drop back and sling that thing. And that's that's all he wanted to do. And, you know, luckily he had a guy like Cooping them out there. You know, he would he would just drop back and sling it. I mean, I love to watch him play. I mean, oh, he could be frustrating. But the thing about him, he reminds me a little bit. I mean, not more than a little bit, a lot like Coker and the fact of how competitive he was. Mm-hmm. Blake Sims was a competitive guy. That's the same thing for Coker. That guy was competitive, and uh, they were fun to watch. That was a fun football team. Yeah, they were, and what a year by Amari Cooper. You're right, and Lane Kiffin, a, a great job of showcasing Coop in that 2014 season. Um, 
you had a solid one-two punch at the running back position. Actually had about four deep that year. That was the year before everyone kind of went their different ways there from that, I guess, 2013 class. But uh, you had Henry, you had Yeldon working together in the backfield. Uh, that was actually a 2014 team that beat a top-ranked team in Mississippi State in Tuscaloosa. I know that sounds kind of weird now when you say it, but um, you know that was a team that probably overachieved, even though it lost to Ohio State in the semifinal of the inaugural CFP down in New Orleans. You get to 2018, and really also you probably want to note here, you're alone. Well, you had two, you've had two defensive players pick up MVP honors in SEC championship games from the Alabama side of things. One of those, Antonio Langham in 92, uh, and the other, Reuben Foster in 2016. Otherwise, it's been offensive MVPs for UA, and its most recent being Josh Jacobs, and that went over Georgia in 2018. And, and, and Josh was really good in that game, don't get me wrong, Tim, but in the MVP voting, you typically do that with about five minutes left in the game. And because of that, Jalen Hurts was more than likely uh, snubbed of MVP honors because we all know what Jalen pulled off there down the stretch of that one. I think there's no doubt. And again, you know, one of the most interesting storylines you find in college football is Tua replacing Jalen the year before. And then the next year, Jalen replacing, uh, I mean, Tua repl- Jalen replacing Tua, and both of them leading to big wins over Georgia. It's almost like they were teasing the Bulldogs, you know, like you know we're gonna, we're, you know, we're gonna bring in our backup and beat you, which happened back to back, which has to be extremely frustrating, especially when you're looking at the difference between Tua and Jalen, and you spend a week scheming for one and get the other. But the timing of that, the stepping up into that. Uh, you know, and I think moments like that were a big reason that Jalen Hurts ended up going, you know, as high as he did in the draft in the second round. Because I think off the field, I think in the locker room, I think from a coach's standpoint, he could do those kind of things. Because that's not, hey, let's be honest. We're watching, anybody watching The Last Dance has seen what an athlete can do on a big stage when he doesn't have his number called with Scottie Pippen sitting out and never living down a moment, letting Tony Kuko be the hero. So Jalen Hurts to even be at the program at that point was saying something. But for him to step in and play a game, and definitely, you know, Josh, Josh was a great football player. You probably could have given him MVP in any game he ever played. He was just so good in so many ways. But Jalen definitely was the key to the Alabama win in that game. Yeah, he was. And I, I agree. I think you're right in that Jalen needed that type of finish to a game to sort of – further his own brand with the next level because you know what we had seen from Jalen in previous years was quite frankly a a passing game for Alabama that as the season wore down in 2016 and 2017 um, so did the passing game and for him to be able to come in in that type of situation and deliver like he did and uh, again, Josh Jacobs really good in the game. I don't know. Maybe even Kirby Smart could have been Alabama's MVP with that fake punt call, Tim, in a tie game late in the fourth quarter. That kind of I knew helps. they were. I knew they were in punt fake. Yeah. <laughs> right. All righty then. Oh, oh gosh. You know, everything was was set up for a fake there. I mean, the field position. Yeah. Uh, you know, J- Justin Fields. Them. Justin Fields being in the game as a punt yeah. protector. Maybe yeah. that was a tip, Tim. Yeah. I don't know. 
I mean, that's like putting Drew Brees in there as the protector <laughs> for the punter. They might be faking, you know. So, obviously, Justin Fields, for that to be his last play at Georgia, I think, was amazing. Um, then the guy goes to Ohio State. The storylines in college football, that's one thing the transfer portals definitely did, is the storylines were insane. I mean, we were probably pretty close to getting a uh, Oklahoma-Alabama possibly. Well, I don't know if they could have played it, but that would have been a playoff game that would have had – you know, if you'd, have, you'd end up with Ohio State and Georgia and Alabama and, and uh, Oklahoma, either of those games at any point, that's going to blow the world apart. I mean, that's going to, you know, the storylines alone between Fields versus Georgia would have been Jalen. Although I thought, I still think Jalen, when he went to Oklahoma, uh, I never, I mean, I still felt like he was an Alabama guy. I mean, they beat Tennessee and I look up on Twitter and he's smoking a cigar. Uh, I saw a lot of Oklahoma fans pretty pissed about that. So I, mean, I always felt that Jalen had a lot of, you know, a lot of love for Alabama. And I think it was reciprocated reciprocated with Coach Saban and that coaching staff. Yeah, I, I think you're right there. Hey, uh, Tim, let's jump into the BOL uh, roundtable mailbag. You ready to do that? Ready to get in there and see what uh, the folks got for us? Let's see what they've got. Yeah, let's start with Ghost of Bryant. He chimes in with his choice for biggest SEC championship win for Alabama in the championship game era, being the first one in 1992. He goes with 2009 uh, as his number two on his list. We're also asking in the mailbag for uh, Tony Soprano's biggest nemesis, because as I've talked about before, I've gone back down, Tim, that Soprano's rabbit hole for the third time. I'm going through. I'm in deep into season five as we record this. And it just kind of struck me watching the series again, how many nemesis Tony had to deal with on almost a daily show to show week to week type basis. Um, who would you have at the top of that nemesis list for Tony Soprano? I mean, the thing about Tony <clears throat> to be the, the head mob guy is he had a lot of animosity in his own house from his own family. <laughs> I mean, his mom, his sister, his uncle. I mean, his sister was one of the – she was a great character. You paired her up with Richie, her boyfriend. That was just so much pressure for a guy like Tony. Um, you could see he was just ready to kill everybody. He, did, he wasn't real friendly to begin with. But I think I think the sister, Janice, is underranked. And, of course, mom's – you know, mom's low hanging fruit. She was just like the one that absolutely drove him crazy. So those two jump out to me, you know, right out of the gate. Yeah, Janice was pretty much Liv Jr., I guess you could say. She was her mom. She was Tony's mom, basically, the, the second coming. Uh, you're right. I think anyone blood related was Tony's prime nemesis. And we're talking about. A guy who was dealing with the feds on a daily basis, yes. moment-to-moment basis. We're talking about a guy who was dealing with the likes of Philly Leotardo, uh, Johnny Sack. Uh, so many great bosses that they ran through here, too. Ralph, the Ralph guy. Ralph's oh, Ralph or Richie. Take your oh, pick yeah. on either of those two. Both of them. I mean, he had so much outside the home. He came in the home. He had ungrateful kids doing a lot of stuff to spite him, as most kids do to their parents at some stage. He had a wife who was angry with him, and I'm not saying she wasn't justified. Tony had some uh, some bad mo- moments, you know, as far but as— But you know what? But you know what? Carm didn't didn't really ever try to, to totally break break ways with Tony. She liked that—look, 
I know we we give Carm some sympathy and stuff like that, but she liked that lifestyle, Tim. I think, she I liked think that she, lifestyle. I think she liked the Tony the way he was. Yeah. I mean, I I doubt Tony in his younger years was showing up with flowers and singing to her, you know, <laughs> on the Brooklyn Bridge. I think he's always been a guy to snap the waiter's neck, you know. So yeah. I think I think she knew what she was getting. She liked that edge too. She liked being with the bad boy. You know, the good girl with the bad boy type thing that, that you see. In most cases, people like the bad boy unless the bad boy's again. I, I know this for a fact. They like Tim's temper when it benefits them. If it's aimed at them, they do not enjoy it quite so much. Well, you think about Tony and his family. They all tried to have him whacked or whack them himself, <laughs> themselves at some point. Junior, uh, Liv pretty uh, much put a hit out on him. Yeah. His mom. Janice was talking it up to Richie about, you know, trying to get him uh, knocked off. Even Ralphie. I mean, Janice went from Richie to Ralphie and yeah. and, and with that plan pretty back much. Back to back. Back yeah. to back. So, yeah. It didn't, didn't work out so good for Richie at the, the kitchen the table guy, there. You're the second guy I know watching this. The other's Grant Ramey on our Tennessee site who's never seen it. So he's watching. Wow. Hell yeah, he's a younger guy. But he's watching it. He's loving it. You mentioned it, and Grant mentioned it. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to rewatch it. It's too good not to watch. In oh, fact, yeah, the other night I went and watched two of my favorite episodes just randomly. So yeah. it's too good. I mean, some of those uh, are almost like a little mini movie. Oh, well, Pauly really episodes are just incredible. You know, I mean, Pauly Walnuts episodes are probably my favorites it's just incredible the writing's just incredible you know they well, don't the they don't miss a beat they don't miss a trick in in six years six seasons of this stuff well the re, the one i love so much is the one where christopher and Polly end up uh in the woods and with the lost. russian yeah they're, <laughs> yeah they're out there fighting a daggone green beret they're out there fighting <laughs> Polly lost his shoe and didn't look for it worth a crap I mean, oh, The Sopranos like, is really a comedy, you know. Oh, it's a hilarious. Yeah, it's a yeah. I mean, it's really what be, it is. You can be laughing your butt off, and then somebody's shot in the face. That's that's yeah. that's the thrill of it. What else yeah. in that mailbag? Yeah, let's get back in there. Um, Ghost of Bryant, by the way, he agrees that uh, Tony's biggest nemesis was easily uh-huh. uh, his mother, and that everything he did was a reflection of Liv. In some way, Bama man for JC, he gets to a topic near and dear to my heart, especially. He wants to know best places to eat in Destin. You mentioned Destin earlier. So uh, what do you got for Bama man for JC? I tell you the thing we always go to, one that the family loves. We go to Pompano Joe's. Um, It's right on the beach. It's the first trip. We usually get there a little bit early when we go down and go and have lunch and wait for the the house to be ready. Uh, Food's great. Um, it's an easy view. It's right out there. Their drinks are great. It's a big beach. It's not super crowded. Uh, and it's beautiful. You know, people that haven't seen the Destin Beach, you know, they think they've seen beautiful beaches, but that's about as, as good as you're going to get anywhere. Sugary. Yeah. 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 And another place we love, it's a little bit a little bit further down from Pompano Joe's, but uh, Louisiana Lanyop, which is uh, fantastic. It's a little bit dressier and all that. Pompano Joe's, you can walk in in your underwear, you know, hat backwards. And that's part of it. You're sitting there eating, and somebody will walk by in their European, I'm talking a grown man, their European thong bathing suit. <laughs> it's a, it's a, so, you know, because they're walking in from the beach to use the bathroom. So oh, jeez. It's a great beach experience. Now, Louisiana Land Yacht's a little nicer. 
a little bit more expensive, but you can't go wrong. It's a great place as well. Yeah, beware of the grape smugglers there. Um, I'm going to keep it pretty simple. I like Harbor Docks in Destin. I, I've become sort of a sushi fan, and I know I can get that there. And uh, it probably has something to do with the extension of Harbor Docks with Chuck's here in Tuscaloosa. And uh, we really enjoy that here in town. So I, I'll just go Harbor Docks and keep it keep it really, really simple. Uh, Crimson D247 in this um mailbag tim says he's never seen the sopranos he's also never seen breaking bad what is a tv show or movie that everyone seems to have seen that neither of us have watched before where you at on that tim i mean you can take a pick for me i haven't seen game of thrones i haven't seen walking dead i haven't seen the office i haven't seen 30 rock yeah i know i know right well i know I will say this for some reason, and I love a good comedy. For some reason, I didn't watch network TV for like a decade for the most yeah. part. And I didn't watch The Office when it was on. I didn't watch 30 Rock when it was on. I didn't watch Park and Rex when it was on. And then um, I have over the last year, started last summer, I've watched all three of them. I actually watched them a second time with my wife. They are unbelievable comedies. Tracy Morgan. Now, I don't know if he knew. I love the, Tracy Morgan. Now, yeah. I'm not positive Tracy Morgan knew that he was being filmed. I think he <laughs> might have thought it was a documentary because I'm not sure he was acting. It and was that's the Tracy Morgan we want. That's the Absolutely. Tracy Morgan I want. And one of the best moments is when my wife started it. She they, the, the, the show started off with him like wrecking his car and running down the street screaming. And she laughed, and I said, ironically, this happened last week. And she said, what? I said, yeah, he wrecked his Bugatti and his Ferrari in, like, back-to-back months or in a six-month window in New York City. He's literally doing that. So that show's fantastic. You know what you get with The Office. Uh, uh, Amy Poehler in, in, uh, in um, Parks and Rec's fantastic. I can't think of one both of us probably haven't seen i catch up a lot of that travis does a lot of the bigger what about what about movies like star wars and that that are just iconic i i I saw the first star wars i fell asleep i was probably eight or nine years old and everyone's fired up we go to the theater and i'm out within like 10 minutes i just couldn't do it i could do the star wars franchise i was mcdonald's star wars bribed because they had (laughs) <laughs> those glo- they had those glasses. Do you remember they were giving away? Yes. Like, dude, uh-huh. pure ass glass. These were real breakable. Cut your hand. They were handing these out to children. Um, no liability concerns back none then. None whatsoever. So we, I love those. So I've never been big into Star Wars. My youngest son loves it. Um, but I have seen, I think I've seen most movies. I've seen most movies out of habit. And I will also go through a period where I'm bored and um, I will uh, like watch, you know, I went like when we went, we went to Italy last summer, I watched the five Oscar movies I've never saw on the way back. Yeah. So I'll go through just spurts of that. So I've probably seen a lot of television. So I'd be hard that's, not to see anything. That's the great thing about that flight from Atlanta to Honolulu that we've made multiple yeah. times here is that you can get in four or five movies that you've never seen before. So you can, uh, it's constructive usage of time there. On that's, those that's what I did. Now on the flight. way up, 
on the way up, I was too busy worried about trying to fall asleep, which is an impossible task. I don't care what anybody says. But uh, on the way back, I was well rested. I was on more of a normal schedule. You can't, you can't sleep on the plane, Tim? Man, I saw stuff. That's my first international flight, and I saw stuff that would not I would not think about sleeping. I went to the <laughs> bathroom, and a dude came bebopping out of the bathroom barefoot. Ah, uh, jeez. I was like, dude, there's 500 people yeah. on this plane using the bathroom. One of it's them in a cruise ship, bro. One of them dropped a stray bullet. You're standing in it. Ah. Uh, so geez. first, I was telling Heather's like, I can't believe these people are walking in their sock feet, and then my boy come bebopping out barefoot. <laughs> Like, you know, like, like it's the Carnival Cruise Line or something. Yes, it was just uh, crazy. And I think he was embarrassed because, you know, it's late at night. Everybody's supposed to be asleep. And I snuck down and he snuck out. And when I when he came out, I looked at his feet. And he looked at me like, <laughs> like, uh oh, I think he just when, was like, I'm going to run down there. Nobody's going to notice. When this is all over, will you take a cruise? Will you do a cruise when this is all over? Dude, I went on one cruise, and it was in me and your BOL heyday when it was just the Tim and Travis show. And you guys who are new um, don't remember this, but the old heads will. Me and Travis were locked on the site. There was no working on your phone. If me and Travis were at a birthday party and had breaking news, we left the birthday party. Absolutely left our own kids' birthday parties to cover. (laughs) So I had not been unplugged to BOL for a while. So we get on that cruise ship and we go to Mexico and all the excursions were great. And I realized that I, I, I had no Mountain Dew, so I had the world's worst headache. Um, there's, mm. no, there's no Mountain Dew in Mexico. I'm going to have to discuss that with somebody at some <laughs> point. Uh, I had the worst headache in the world. And then I turns out I'm seasick and I got home. And for five days, I swayed when I stood. And I thought, yeah. this, I thought this was in my head. I mean, I don't know anything about seasick or anything else. You got to put on wife, one of the patches, man. You got to wear well, one of those patches. I'm a wiser man now. Last time yeah. I'm just, all right, let's go. I'm good. And then I get there like, why is my cell phone working? She's like, uh, because we're in the middle of the ocean, dipshit. You know, she was not, <laughs> she was not, yeah. My wife's looking at me like, I am full blown the dumbest human being ever. Why is my phone not working? Why didn't I bring a computer? Like, you don't know where you're at, do you? Yeah, you know the wives love those cruises. You know, they love them. I'm almost positive Heather did it intentionally because I was so wound up on the site. And I'll tell you the truth, it worked because when I got back, yeah. I found moments, and I think me and you did a great job of adjusting to this to finding moments away from the site. Have to. Yeah. Yeah. Especially guess- back then, because you're right, you didn't have the mobile devices or any of that stuff. You know, you were like you said, you were pretty much anchored to that uh, desktop that we had in our our home offices back in the day. Yeah. That's why when the younger guys doing this, I have no mercy that something happened (laughs) while they were in a movie theater and they had to step out to the lobby and post it. Uh, We were going home. I used to have to go all the way home to do it and come back. (laughs) I hope nobody was sitting with my girl. Oh, goodness. Hey, um, yeah, I'm good on cruises anyway. The last one I went on, Bad Tooth, ended up with a partial root canal for that. being performed in uh, St. Martin, I believe it was. Hey, as we get out of here, Tim, one more. G-Say 001 uh, wants to know, uh, who do we have in this rumored Mike Tyson, uh, Vander Holyfield comeback fight? We've been seeing some of this on social media. Do we know if this is actually going to happen? And if it I mean, does, what's the level of interest? Man, I saw Mike work. I know 
I think I I saw Mike Tyson working out. And it was amazing. The video looks sped up. It's amazing how I mean we knew what that guy was. He was a yeah. monster, and in a way, the world should be happy he didn't have like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant's mentality, or there would be death. There would be a line of carcasses. <laughs> there would be dead the bodies. There would be yeah. dead bodies lined up for miles behind that guy boxing if he would focus just on boxing. One of the most impressive athletes ever. Uh, I go with Tyson. Evander's a great guy. Good work. All that stuff. I just think Tyson's always going to have that power. And, uh, you know, judging by how he's acted the last 10 or 15 years, I think he's matured a lot, obviously. Um, I just can't imagine a 20-year-old being in the situation he was in, uh, not knowing anything about the world and having to rely on people like Robin Gibbons and, and people like that to guide him and, you know, everything that went down. So, uh, you know, we we hear all the bad tales about people, but that guy's been out of trouble for a long time, and stayed out of trouble. And he is he's hilarious. You know, he's a hilarious. He did the he did the one man show thing. He took on the road like he, a tour. He's just know, a funny guy. When you see him interviewed, he's just a funny guy. He looks like a guy you want to smoke a cigar with, and just you know just BS with on the back porch. So. Um, but him as a as a fighter, I mean, his workout was unbelievable. And I think they said he hadn't touched pads in ten years. And he it's just the speed and quickness and power of that guy. It's you know, it's the most amazing thing I've seen. Yeah, I would probably have to go with, with Tyson in that scenario. The only Tyson in the heavyweight division though that I'm really interested in watching these days is uh Tyson Fury, named after Mike Tyson and of course Deontay Wilder in that division now and uh, Anthony Joshua and there's there's actually potential for the heavyweight division once we get back to some semblance of normalcy well Tim I think that's going to do it as always we really appreciate the interaction and the uh, the offerings from our members there on the BamaOnline.com roundtable yeah we appreciate you guys sticking around um it's been very active and entertaining considering there's no sports. These guys, the uh, the members are fantastic at, dis- at finding topics to discuss, keeping it lively. The excitement behind the Ja'Cory Brooks commitment last week was great to watch. I know that was a, a needed boost, but you guys stick to the roundtable. We appreciate you, and uh, let us know if you have any questions. And be sure to subscribe to the Built by Bama online podcast. It's simple. Anywhere you subscribe, anywhere you take your podcast, you can do that. We would certainly appreciate it. Leave us a rating and a review while you're there. That would help us out a great deal. For Tim Watts, Travis Ryder, thanking you once again for joining us here on the Built by Bama online podcast. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now.